Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. On today's podcast, we have a conversation with Dr. Liliana M. Garces, who is Associate Professor of Educational Leadership and Policy in the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin and Affiliate Faculty, Texas Law School. Some of her recent publications include a co-authored article in Educational Researcher, A Comprehensive and Practical Approach to Policy Guidance, The Office for Civil Rights' Role in Education During the Obama Administration, and in the American Journal of Education, Addressing Racial Health Inequities, Understanding the Impact of Affirmative Action Bans on Applications and Admissions in Medical Schools. Uh, Dr. Garza, it's very good to have you on our show. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed listening to your podcast. I've learned a lot. Well, my first question is, as a former attorney turned academic researcher, scholar, um, what do you think about the role of race, democracy, and really the law? Hmm. Well, as, um, as you mentioned, I am a recovering lawyer in some ways. And my, uh, my work in education is really trying to understand um, how the law and education systems shape access and inequality for historically marginalized populations in higher education. And the law, the, what the courts decide in this area, um, can have really big significant implications for what education policy um, practices we have in place to address racial inequity. And when you think about those historically marginalized groups that you study, who are some of those groups? Uh, African-American students, Lat- Latinx uh, students, uh, mostly race and ethnicity, okay. uh, fundamentally. And when you think about how has the law and court shaped both a lack of access and then opening up the doors in terms of higher education since, I don't know, I would say, it, is it mostly the 20th century, since the 19th century, certainly post-slavery um, and Reconstruction? Well, a lot of my work has focused on uh, race-conscious policies, affirmative action policies, policies that were implemented in 1960s that um, were really trying, uh, via executive order um, that President Lyndon B. Johnson enacted, really trying to uh, require public institutions, uh, including institutions of higher education, to take affirmative action to uh, provide more equal opportunity uh, for for populations that had been historically oppressed and to um, help level the, plain, the playing field. That That's a policy that has seen uh, litigation um, and has been challenged in the courts, and the result of those challenges have led to a number of legal decisions that have really shifted um, our understanding of what those policies are and how uh, they can actually be used and implemented in current practice. I want to talk to you about affirmative action before the Baki decision, 1978. So when we think about affirmative action and sort of the Johnson administration and even the Nixon administration, in terms of higher education, 
Initially, we see goals and timetables and frameworks where schools of higher education, I'm thinking everything from Berkeley to Harvard, but also City College, City University of New York. I grew up in New York City, uh, Stony Brook University. They have real goals and numbers that they're trying to bring. And not just African-Americans and Latinx populations, but also women, too, right, in the pre-Baki um, regime. And when we think about how admissions are conducted, people are looking at goals of saying, hey, here's how many we need. And then suddenly there's going to be real major pushback against that. Now, why, why is that? Is it just conservatives who are saying that this is reverse racism, that white people yeah. are being displaced and disadvantaged if we look at people of color and we try to intently recruit them? Well, that's where we've ended up now with the legal developments. It's that kind of that framing. But what this really... Um, so if you think about kind of two camps um, that when we, if we think about affirmative action policies as representative of a debate over race uh, in America and how it is that we address the effects of ongoing and past racial discrimination and oppression. You have those who have for a long time sought to, um, who believe that um, and, and some of, you know, longtime opponents of affirmative action policies, including some justices uh, who are currently sitting in the U.S. Supreme Court. Absolutely. Clarence um, Thomas. Clarence Thomas, um, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, who believe and argue that considering race um, by classifying on the basis of race, um, that in itself is tantamount to racial discrimination. Um, you saw those very words uh, reflected by Chief Justice uh, John Roberts in a decision that he wrote in 2007 yeah, where the yeah the why to stop race. discrimination um, on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race right the um, a perspective that really equates classifications with harmful discrimination absolutely so so when you think about these two camps so that that's one camp right the the camp of the the belief that by just classifying on the basis of race we're going to um, that that is racial discrimination then the other camp uh, which is really where i fall based on um, my understanding and the working assumptions that I bring uh, to my work is that race continues to matter um, and that the way to have it uh, to to attain more racial equity is to actually encounter the issue and address it head on. Um, and that's, a, that's the perspective that um, is also reflected in some of the Supreme Court justices currently sitting in the Supreme Court with Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, right now it reflects a minority opinion uh, where she also wrote in a decision about seven years after that uh, decision that Justice uh, John Roberts wrote in almost direct conversation with that quote, um, that the what we needed was to um, really have, um, that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to speak openly and candidly on the subject of race. Um, and um, in, those, in those two camps, it's been a challenge, it's it's a fight over which of those interpretations and versions of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment we're going to have reflected through these legal decisions. Um, and after you had these original affirmative action policies, we start we started to see the the case that starts with Baki, um, where you have um, Alan Baki, white male applicant to medical school. 
um, who'd been denied twice, um, had been denied admission twice, had been denied admission to all the other 12 schools, medical schools that he applied to. And he challenges a specific policy that UC Davis Medical School has that reflected, represented this uh, this goal, this set aside, this quota um, as as originally done through affirmative action. Or at that, least they're defining it as quota, the, the, the opponents, because these are supposed to be goals and timetables to have equal outcomes in the way that um, President Lyndon Johnson described in the June 5th, 1965 Howard University commencement address, where he says that we have to have not equality of opportunity, but equality of outcomes. Exactly. But I want to talk about, I want to talk yeah. to you about colorblindness, because really when you think about the two camps, one camp is colorblindness. And for all of our listeners, when you think about colorblindness, this is, um, and people like Ian Hanley Lopez and people have criticized this as colorblind racism. This is the idea that you know, since the civil rights era, what civil rights wanted, what Dr. King wanted was a colorblind constitution, right? So any way in which race is injected into the constitution or law becomes racist from that perspective. Um, and what that perspective of sort of colorblind racism doesn't talk about is outcomes. So it says that we are sort of all equal uh, by fiat. And then when we look at outcomes of educational access, how many kids are getting into UT, getting into Harvard, getting into elite institutions, if we don't find a number of Latinx and African-American and other kids, we say, well, that just is because of some other reason. It's not, it's not racialized. So I want to ask you about how this colorblind philosophy has made it much more harder to argue in terms of civil rights litigation for racial justice and really to prove racial injury, um, not just in higher education cases, but in a number of cases, death penalty cases, Supreme Court, the standard has become so high. You have to almost have a smoking gun of people plotting and planning against people of color in a way that no longer occurs. So we can see institutional racism through outcomes, but the court wants even more in terms of to intervene. Uh, yes, and the way that I think about it is the way in which the legal developments in this area that have to do with how do we understand what the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment requires um, and how the interpretation of that provision has really made it much more difficult for institutions to achieve their goals. And the way that it's been done is through this chipping away um, through legal attacks on affirmative action policy in a way that has read a more colorblind approach of the Equal Protection Clause uh, for, for institutions um, with very important and significant implications. We're not quite there yet in terms of a full colorblind reading of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, what, that's what I think the current challenge is to practice, and we can speak about um, the, the current challenges a little bit more later, um, are trying to do. But the... Um, this going back to this Baki case, which is really pivotal in terms of how we understand uh, the practice, because I no longer call it affirmative action. What we have in place is not those kinds of policies. It's a it's a kind of race consciousness that it's a much more diluted uh, practice. And the and way that's that Justice Blackman who who says that you know it can be one of many different things. Blackman in that case he says you know you know you you have to think about 
whether it's a kid who's from Nebraska or a kid might be African-American, he just dilutes and he, he mixes up sort of race, class, geography, and says Correct. it can be one yeah. of many things. And it's, and it's done through, um, through this interpretation of these uh, provisions through a very conservative, uh, concerted attack um, on these policies. Um, the way that the Baki case turned is that, you know, at the time that the challenge was brought, it there was no um, there was no test that had been decided of what would apply for how we interpret what equal protection means, right? Um, and um, you know, provision that was enacted to ensure equal citizenship for freed uh, recently freed slaves. Um, and it's a question of you know, for equality, do we need to consider? Um, it's important to consider the context, right? That we're not starting from an equal playing field, um, and so we might need to treat people differently in order to be equal. But as um, at the time in the court, you didn't have a final test that was going to apply, and you had um, four um, four justices who represented a, what's called in the in, in legalese the anti-classification approach, which is more that first perspective that I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, the perspective that what. Uh, if you had any classification on the basis of race, it was going to be really harmful. And so we were going to require the strictest test mm-hmm. for uh, for institutions to have to show if they were going to have any kind of policy that looked at race explicitly. Um, you had four other justices who had a different perspective, the anti-subordination approach, uh, to use more legalese, uh, that represent that second perspective that um, actually in order for um, that, well, that under that perspective, the policies that look at race that are harmful are those that are intended to oppress particular groups, not those that are intended to achieve more equality, which is really what was at play with the policy at UC Davis. So the law can be color conscious in negative ways, but it can be color conscious in positive ways as well. From that perspective. From, yes, from that perspective. Yeah, so you think about Supreme Court, you think about Plessy versus Ferguson is color conscious in a very negative way, yet the Brown decision is color conscious in a in a positive way in terms of saying that we're, we're desegregating and schools have to be de- desegregated. When we think about the Dahl test and mm-hmm. what, what um, uh, the Warren Court decides openly right. um, um, in 1954. Yes, yeah. and you had, so you had that division and then you had Justice Powell who... Had was really aligned with the anti-classification approach. And as a result of his decision, we have the application of a very strict test uh, called, uh, called strict scrutiny that has um, a couple of components. Um, one, it requires institutions to show that they have a very compelling interest uh, for what they're trying to achieve through these policies. And second, that, they're, that they need to get there through the... Um, kind of narrowly tailored ways that they've considered all other approaches um, before they resort essentially to race. And once you have the application of that test for that policy, it really shifted. Uh, it provided a, a legal shift that then gave power for in, for individuals to use the Equal Protection Clause um, as a way to challenge practices that were intended to promote 
equal opportunity for African Americans in our society uh, and equate that with potential practices that would be potentially discriminatory against whites. And that's where you then have this reversal of thinking of these policies as potentially reverse discrimination. And then it leads to a really important shift in practice as well for institutions where, um, because the court also, Justice Powell says, uh, yes, we're going to apply this strict scrutiny test. So you have um, very, very hard tests for institutions to pass. And when it comes to that compelling interest that, that you can achieve, it can't be addressing the effects of racial discrimination, which is really what the policy at UC Davis Medical School was trying to do. It set aside 16 spaces out of a class of 100 uh, for historically disadvantaged uh, students in order to address the ongoing effects of racial discrimination. But Justice Powell said it couldn't have that policy to address that goal, that the goal could only be the educational benefits of diversity. And that in order to get there, it couldn't have these set-asides, these quotas, that it needed to be a holistic review of the applicant, uh, where race was only one factor among many. So you have this um, different goal that takes you away from being able to look at racial discrimination uh, more head-on and directly, but also ways that dilute the way that we might get there. Absolutely. So really, what's so extraordinary is really about a decade into affirmative action's practical application, uh, the Supreme Court, and really white supremacy rears its ugly head again and really says we can't have um, these outcomes that are more equalized because that's somehow going to be discriminatory against, against in Baki's case, white men. I think it's hugely pernicious um, and extra- extraordinary in the sense of it's such a small window. And I know for African-Americans, educational parity in higher education was coming um, by the late 1970s. You know, So it's right around the time where if Baki hadn't happened, you would have had much more educational parity in higher education, including when we think about a pipeline for uh, presidents, a pipeline for professors and all the STEM and all the sciences and humanities, a pipeline for administrators. So this is really not um, something by accident. This is really a weaponized um, public policy that's anti-Black and anti-Latinx uh, as well. Um, so this is really extraordinary. It is. And it's the use of the courts to do that within education policy in in an arena that um, is kind of this anti-political arena, right? Because you don't need that kind of um, coming together from different interest groups to come to a certain outcome. It's a very strategic use of the courts to to affect education policy. I want to ask you about the Obama administration, but I want to ask about, before that, um, Sandra Day O'Connor. And, and affirmative action and how Sandra Day O'Connor became a kind of swing vote here, uh, decided not to end it. But I remember um, reading her decision and she said something like, you know, in 25 years, we shouldn't have any of these uh, uh, kind of uh, looking at race anymore. So what's so interesting is the impatience of um, whites, whether it's men in the case of Powell or women in the case of Sandra Day O'Connor, who's lauded by many white feminists as this feminist icon, uh, but that when it comes to racial justice, uh, they really weren't having it, you know? And so there's a timeline. There's a timeline saying, well, there's going to be a time where we can't talk about this anymore. 
um, really irrespective of the political realities people are facing on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that decision comes out in the next set of challenges after Baki, which was a 1978 decision. After that, um, you had these legal challenges by uh, two female white uh, white female applicants yeah. to University of Michigan, um, the undergraduate school, as well as the University uh, of Michigan's law school. That's the Grutter and Gratz uh, v. Bollinger decisions. And by that time, you had a much more robust body of evidence that supported the educational benefits of diversity. You had the social science community coming together to take advantage of this sliver that had been left by Baki, which is the diversity rationale. And diversity is not the struggle for black equality and Latino. Absolutely not. Latinx equality. It is not. It's diversity. It's diversity. And after Baki, it was diversity very broadly defined as well. So it wasn't just not being able to address racial discrimination as well as having diversity in a very broad definition where race could only be even just one factor. And and one thing I'll add, in context of what's going on right now, We've had the big college admission scandal and all these different things that's happened this year. Um, It also seems that uh, the opponents of affirmative action were very well aware that this was going to open up the playing field and it was going to create a new set of winners and losers to the extent that the set-asides historically have been for white males. Um, At all these universities in corporate America, right now, 70% of corporate boards are white male. You know, Facebook is just adding, uh, you know, an African-American, you know, American Express CEO, Ken Chenault, to their their board. So do you think that the legal system understood this and and wanted to make sure in terms of policy-wise, you think about Sandra Day O'Connor saying 25 years or else, Powell, that there'd be, you'd still have that basically a protection of white privilege through through the courts. Yes, um, I believe so. The the strategy within, and this is where you see, you know, the tension of working within the legal system to push the boundaries, but understanding that that legal system is really in a lot of ways being used to protect white supremacy. Um, but so the litigation in, in those cases with, uh, with uh, the... Grutter and Gratz cases that led to Justice O'Connor's opinion. And I would argue that those 25 years, that's that's dicta, as we say in, 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 in legalese, which is um, not really part of the holding, but a more kind of aspirational words that, that she mentioned. But of course, those who oppose the practice altogether will hold on to those words and say that it is part of this requirement. Uh, my understanding is that it was something that came from a, a law clerk that she that, that she had who suggested that, you know, it's been about 25 years since Baki. Maybe we could include this language in, in the opinion. Again, I don't know if that's true or not, given that we're not supposed to really have insight into the inner workings of the Supreme Court. Um, but, but the litigation and the strategy for that case was really trying to hold on to that, to that sliver of diversity and argue for the benefits that that brings to white students as well. So it was really this, uh, this strategy based on interest convergence of focused on the kind of outcome of protecting the small part that Baki left open for institutions to be able to use race as a factor in admissions, um, not to have affirmative action. Uh, that was ruled really as unconstitutional after Baki, 
and um, and to try to convince specifically Justice O'Connor of the benefits of diversity, not just for the classroom, which is what really Justice Powell was focused on and the importance of we know that diversity has a lot of important benefits for the education of, um, of all students, improving critical thinking skills, addressing racial stereotypes, breaking down um, those kinds of racial stereotypes that we might bring. But also, with her opinion, she expanded the ability for institutions to use race in order to, also, to maintain the health of our democracy, mm-hmm. right? To have a pathway to positions of leadership that was open to all regardless of race or ethnicity. That became an important rationale in that decision, but still with the constraints of diversity as the rationale and not really racial discrimination. I want to ask about um, the UT Fisher, you know, Fisher versus UT University of Texas case uh, to preserve the top 10% rule. Uh, at UT, and where do you think top 10% is going to go? But I want to ask it within the context of uh, 2009 to 2017, January 20th, 2009, January 20th, 17, is the administration of Barack Obama. And how do you think that administration, because we hadn't had a Democratic president since Clinton, um, you know, there had been eight years of a George George W. Bush administration, which was certainly more, more um, hostile to, to ideas of uh, open access and inclusion, especially affirmative action. Um, how did the Obama administration and that that both Department of Education and Justice Department, when you think about education policy for African Americans, for Latinx population, people of color, how was it um, in terms of defending basically the principles of affirmative action, but also open access in terms of higher education? Hmm. Um, well. The Obama administration played an important role through its policy guidance um, that it can issue as as part of its powers uh, to help institutions navigate and understand the parameters of Supreme Court decisions, for example. Um, And you had them play a role um, with interpreting the, the outcome of Fisher and what institutions could do. Um, so that was that was important, um, and as well, if I remember correctly, they um, they refer back to the Grutter and Gratz decisions as well. So that that was an important piece because you could legal decisions are not they don't enact themselves, right? They um, the way in which they're applied on the ground really depends on interpretation, and the policy guidance that the Obama administration issued was very clear in clarifying that the ability for institutions to use race as a factor remained constitutional. Again, within the parameters of promoting diversity, not going back to affirmative action, but really a much more kind of race-conscious approach And why are those uh, policy guidelines so important and impactful to institutions? Um, Well, they're—so they don't necessarily change the law— uh, but they do help institutions understand where the administration is with respect to um, its its interpretation and its understanding, and that they were not going to be open to the threat of litigation, for example, if they implement a particular approach versus not. Um, so after Grutter, the next set of challenges um, to affirmative or really race-conscious policies by now 
um, come with the Fisher case against University of Texas. And here you have uh, a plaintiff who's recruited by uh, Edward Bloom, a longtime conservative um, attack, uh, individual who's organized very concerted, uh, concerted attacks against affirmative action. He's a financial advisor, no no like real legal um, training, but has um, ha- falls under this camp of thinking of racial classifications as racial discrimination, recruits Abigail Fisher as someone who can be a plaintiff to initiate a lawsuit against the University of Texas at Austin, which had reintroduced race as a factor in its admissions decisions um, in uh, about 2007 to 2008, um, which it was able to do after Gruder came down and overruled the prior case that had prevented the university from doing that. Mm. So that's a that's a case that's a challenge to the race-conscious part of the university's admissions policy, not the top 10% plan. Um, that was not um, what was at issue in that okay. case. It was used to... Um, to argue that the university had this alternative policy to achieve its diversity. So under this um, this requirement that I mentioned uh, previously about narrowly tailored means to get there, the top 10% plan was used um, in arguments against the University of Texas saying, you've got this policy that allows you to get to where you're trying to get to. You don't need the consideration of race. And UT seeks to defend that um, through a lot of evidence showing that the top 10% plan is not helping it realize its goals. Um, And ultimately, you end up with, after... The case goes back to the Supreme Court twice. Um, I won't go into all those details, uh, but you end up with this kind of compromise decision that no one expected um, from Justice Kennedy really providing the majority vote there, still preserving race-conscious admissions for institutions of higher education. While those challenges are happening and they're going back, um, go to Supreme Court once, it gets it gets sent back to the Fifth Circuit, it goes back to the Supreme Court, they agree um, that it is constitutional. In the meantime, you have Edward Bloom initiating a new round of challenges to the policy, recruiting um, through it, um, the... Students for Fair Admissions, which he begins, um, advertises through websites to have Asian American plaintiffs in a new case against Harvard University, um, also seeks uh, new plaintiffs in a case that is now making its way through the courts against UNC Chapel Hill as well. Um, Cases that allege that race-conscious admissions are discriminatory against Asian American uh, applicants in the case of Harvard, uh, white applicants in the case of UNC Chapel Hill. But what that really represents is, again, a concerted effort to get back to the Supreme Court on an issue that's already been ruled on various times and have um, the ability to, to have that very strict reading of the Equal Protection Clause has not won yet, but with this new concerted effort to bring it back to the Supreme Court at a time that we have a changed composition and the potential votes to enact a much more restrictive reading of the Equal Protection Clause is where we might find ourselves. 
Or end race consciousness and admissions completely. Completely, right. Yeah. That that would be the the extension of that um, that interpretation would now prevent any kind of race consciousness in admissions practices. And so what do you think the future holds in terms of um, the court and race consciousness when we think about the current makeup of the court, current makeup of our federal political system? <laughs> um, it's not looking good. I don't know that I, you know, it, it, a lot depends on how the lower courts rule, who decides to appeal, if it does make to the Supreme Court. If it does make it back to the Supreme Court, you do have the votes to have a much more uh, restrictive reading that would prevent institutions from using race um, as a factor uh, in their admissions decisions, which is really, right now, the way that the practice plays out it's not this sense of preferential treatment, which is what we had before Baki. That's what Baki, in some ways, um, this kind of set aside or quota uh, ruled as unconstitutional. What we have now is just the ability for all students to present their full selves to admissions officers, right? To um, to understand that. Race continues to play a role in people's experiences and shaping educational opportunities and, um, and preserving that ability for students of color to present that part of their identity in, in applications. Uh, and it, it's really to maintain a much more um, even ability for all applicants to be considered. Um, and if you were to remove that, you end up with a process that would essentially discriminate against students of color because you would not... More than it's already. <laughs> more than it already is. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you. We'll leave it on on that note and optimistically hope that this will um, continue. Well, I would say, well, let me, if I can add to that um, as well, is if we if we were to to get there... What we really need is a reimagination in, in higher education of how we look at merit and how it is that we define it. Because in some ways, what affirmative action represents or race-conscious admissions, it's kind of, it's this band-aid on a system that is much more unequal. And it, and it keeps us from looking at those structural inequities that we have in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, with focus on standardized test scores, uh, which are um, really discriminate against uh, students of color, um, it, they're they're much. Research has shown that they're measures of uh, wealth and family resources much more than any kind of innate intelligence or potential. Um, we have other practices in place that really favor the. Um, wealthy white applicants like legacy preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we could reimagine merit and um, and align that the factors that we use in admissions with the factors that we might value for institutions of higher education within a democracy, then we might have a very different kind of system that would not require, um, that wouldn't be based on thinking of race-conscious admissions as this piece that is um, really just a very small uh, band-aid to a larger, larger problem. All right, we'll end on that optimistic note. Uh, it's been great talking to you, Dr. Liliana M. Garces, who is 
associate professor of educational leadership and policy in the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin, and also affiliate faculty at the Texas Law School, and um, really an expert in race, higher education, and the law, and access to students of color and, and other marginalized groups. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Peniel. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.